to John 20 as we are all standing together. Uh, we are looking at, guess what, the resurrection this morning. If you didn't get the context clues, uh, we are looking at John chapter 20 this morning, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, join with me in John chapter 20. If you don't have a print Bible in front of you, uh, consider this a wonderful opportunity to start bringing your print Bible uh, to church. And if you don't have a print Bible, maybe pull it up on your phone. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 20 today, verses 1 through 18. Uh, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us about Christ's resurrection. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in light sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. He is risen Aha! Some of you caught that. Very good, right? Let's try that again. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Would you please take your seat as we pray on this Sunday morning? Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are risen, that you are vindicated by your Holy Spirit, that you are seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Uh, Lord Jesus, that you will return one day to make all things new. Holy Spirit, would your wind blow through this place? In the power of Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, Gregor McGregor was a Scottish man who in the 1820s and 30s uh, became one of the first and most famous con men of all time. A, a con man is short for a confidence man, uh, right? He's a con man, a guy who exudes a lot of confidence, but he's really duping people. Uh, well, McGregor arrived in London in 1820 and began hobnobbing with all the well-to-do and the wealthy. Uh, McGregor famously convinced countless people that he was actually the ruler of a country in Central America called Poyace. 
He described poies as a farmer's dream. Uh, he said that you could get three crops of corn every year. He said there were streams with nuggets of gold ready for the taking. Uh, he said in his country of Poyes, there was a capital called St. Joseph that where 20,000 people lived, uh, they had a thriving government. They even had a concert hall in the thriving capital of St. Joseph. Uh, McGregor was so adamant uh, that he had began selling uh, government bonds. Uh, anyone bought a government bond lately? He sold government bonds of Poyes. He had them printed. He sold parcels of land of Poyes to people. And uh, most uh, uh, audaciously, you could say, he even convinced hundreds of men, women, and children to board boats and cross the Atlantic from England to go to this fictional country called Poyes. Uh, in fact, on the second journey of uh, colonists that went over there, uh, he arrived at the dock in England and actually announced that all the children and women would, would travel for free to his country of Poyes as a demonstration of his generosity. Uh, of course, you know what's coming, right? Uh, the country didn't exist, <laughs> uh, nor anything remotely close to a country called Poyes. The city of St. Joseph uh, was entirely fictional, and even to this day, that section that he claimed was his country, his thriving country, is still basically a remote jungle in Honduras. Uh, sadly, some 200 of those colonists died of sickness. Uh, tragically, the boat dropped them off, and then a storm came, and then the boat turned around and retreated without saving any of the people. Uh, amazingly, of course, McGregor made all of these bold, audacious claims. And as one person put it, he is, after all, the father of securities fraud, right? <laughs> Selling fake government bonds, lying to people. And of course, you know, a, a guy like Gregor McGregor, you know, a liar like this deserves nothing but scorn, right? And contempt from us. He promised incredible things uh, but in reality, it was all fictional. It was all a lie. Uh, and he deserves nothing but scorn or contempt. It doesn't matter any other aspects of his personal life, right? What matters was he was lying, and people suffered for it. And so as we come to the story of the resurrection, uh, when we hear audacious, bold claims uh, made by a charismatic man like Jesus, uh, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus a con man? Is he a confidence man that was promising all kind of audacious things? Uh, not an island in Central America, but eternity itself, an eternal life, a relationship with God, the creator, that would mean that he would become your father, your good father. So how do we know that Jesus was telling the truth, that he wasn't just lying to us? Uh, well, friends, I think the proof is in the pudding, right? Uh, Christianity doesn't just ask you to believe because of the sake of believing. Uh, the claims of the gospel are rooted in historical fact. Uh, another way of putting it is Jesus claimed certain things, and those things came true and are coming true right before our eyes. I mean, consider this. Uh, Jesus says that in three days, the temple could be torn down and raised to life. And we know Jesus was actually talking about himself. Uh, Jesus says repeatedly to his disciples that he is going to die at the hands of merciless men, and he does die at the hands of merciless men. You see, the reason that the resurrection matters, the reason that it's important that we know it's a historical fact, is because everything we trust and know about Jesus hinges on whether or not he was lying to us or whether or not he really is the truth itself. 
Uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we of all people should be most pitied because we are deceived and we're deceiving other people. But Christ isn't dead. He is alive. And everything about our faith hinges on that very fact. Uh, and I want you to see in John chapter 20 uh, sort of uh, some reasons for why this should matter so much to us, particularly today in 2020. And I think the, the main reasons are, are, are pretty simple, right? I mean, there's a lot of reason to weep right now, aren't there? I mean, there are a lot of reasons to be really discouraged. Uh, but I love that uh, the angels and Jesus both ask Mary, why are you weeping right now? What a beautiful question. Why are you weeping? You know, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? Uh, so in light of the resurrection and to sort of understand whether or not Jesus is actually telling us the truth or not. I want to give you uh, three simple reasons not to weep, okay? I'm going to, give you, I'm going to give you three reasons not to weep right now. I know you may think there are a lot of reasons to weep, but I'm going to give you three reasons not to. Uh, if you would want the positive, I'm going to give you three reasons for today for you and I to be experiencing joy and hope, right? Joy and hope, those are actual things that you can lay a hold of today. All right, so the first reason you and I should not be weeping is because the resurrection is number one. If you want an outline, it's my first point. The first point is very simply, the resurrection is a historical fact. It's simply true. It's a historical fact. And because it's true, it really changes everything about the nature of life. You know, Jesus wasn't a con man, and he's not promising us land in Central America it really did happen. And I know for many of us, that is it's a hard claim uh, to sort of embrace, right? It, um, it sort of offends our modern worldview, you know? Uh, you know, personally, I was not always convinced of the truth of Christianity, so I'm sensitive to somebody who doesn't think this really uh, affects them. You know, on one hand, uh, maybe you don't think it really, you know, makes sense. Maybe, you know, you're kind of a rationalist, right? And this sort of offends your rational mind that somebody could come back from the dead. Right, so uh, what's very popular today is to believe uh, maybe Jesus didn't really come back from the dead, but really what's happening, you know, psychologically or sociologically was these disciples, you know, have sort of a heightened spiritual awareness of Jesus. You know, that's what the resurrection is actually about. You know, it's kind of like taking the story of Jesus and doing the opposite of what your eye doctor does, right? Instead of seeing it clearly and more clearly, right, that would be sort of taking the story of Jesus and, and you know, making it hazier and hazier, right? We say, well, the details don't really matter, but basically the idea is we're just supposed to be sort of spiritual. You know, if this is a legend that kind of helps you live, that's great. You know, uh, you know, this is famously put forward by uh, people like the Jesus Seminar people, you know, St. Dominic Crossan, who uh, was one of the co-founders of the Jesus Seminar. He says all the resurrection stories are basically made up. You know, the, the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus, you know, Crossan says, you know, Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens. You see, what he means is, you know, well, the resurrection's not historically true. It's a legend. It's just sort of a spiritual idea that just sort of helps us get through life. Uh, but friends, if you're tempted to think that, um, there are uh, valid intellectual reasons for us to accept that the Gospels are written as historical fact. That if the Jewish writers of the New Testament had wanted to portray this as a legend, they could have done so very easily. Uh, but uh, you can go to the, you know, the scholarly top-shelf work of guys like Richard Bauckham, who teaches at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, he goes at great lengths in his seminal work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, 
to show that everything about the Gospels and the way that they are written and the way that the eyewitness accounts are described uh, leads us to believe that this is meant to be taken as historical fact, not legend. Uh, so what is it that we're supposed to see that's supposed to convince us that this is historical fact? Well, let me give you sort of a few reasons for why uh, you should believe that Jesus came back from the dead bodily and literally, like I literally mean that, like in the fullest sense, right? Uh, the first reason, you know, has been famously cited, and you've probably heard it, but very simply, uh, and we see it right here in John chapter 20, who's the main focus of the resurrection story besides Jesus? Well, it's actually women. Uh, you know, John focuses only on Mary, but the other gospel writers, they talk about multiple women coming to the tomb, and, and John references them when Mary says, we uh, right there in uh, verse, uh, I think it's verse two or three, she says, we went and saw that they had taken his body away. So the first reason to believe that this is a historical fact is because the gospel writers are all unanimous that women are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Um, if you were trying to create a, a case, an argument for why you should believe this story, which is what all the apostles are doing when they evangelize, they're trying to convince you that this really happened, it's fascinating and counterintuitive that all of these disciples say a bunch of women got it right. And if you don't think it's true, let me name them for you so you can go talk to them yourself. And this was incredibly uh, important for us to realize because in this world, especially in Israel at this time, a woman's testimony in court was not legally permissible, right? So a, a woman's testimony amounted to nothing. So you have to ask yourself, if these guys are trying to pull the wool over our eyes or trying to make some argument about spiritual truth but not factual truth, why would they go out of their way to make themselves all look pretty thick-headed and stupid, right? We didn't get it, but make women the main apostle to the apostles, the main one who sees the resurrected Christ, who then reports it to the men. They hang the testimony of the eyewitnesses on women's testimony, pretty odd if you're trying to lie to people. All right, and that leads to the sort of second argument for why I think we should believe this. I mean, if you just read the gospel accounts, is anyone under any impression that the disciples are great, wonderful, really intuitive guys who just immediately get everything, or do they often struggle to even understand the basics? I mean, even after Jesus' death, and after the resurrection, in John 20, in our passage, Peter is still trying to understand the scriptures. I mean, the audacity of a bunch of guys to say, we are speaking on behalf of God. We know this to be true. So let me tell you a story about all the ways I didn't get it right. Let me tell you about all the ways that I was really petty. Is that, does that sound like the kind of guy that is a con man? Does that sound like the kind of person with moral, uh, you know, a lack of moral integrity. Uh, the, the irony, of course, is that the disciples depict themselves in, in, in painfully awkward uh, honesty. You know, Luke tells us in Luke 22 that uh, they even, there's a dispute among them about which one is going to be the greatest. <laughs> they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest, right? And then Jesus has to teach them that he came to serve, not to be served. And that's the model of the life that God blesses. And that's what they should embody. I mean, in the other Gospels in Matthew, I mean, the, the disciples asked God to, to smite a bunch of cities dead with lightning and fire. I mean, what a, what a thing to say for people you're trying to evangelize. I mean, why would they put these awkward stories into their accounts? 
I think the most plausible reason is because they literally saw Jesus back from the dead. And they were marked by an incredible amount of honesty and openness about all of the ways that they had been mistaken and they had sinned and they had not gotten what God was up to. You know, it's the audacity of surprising reality, right? Jesus is alive. I don't care if you don't think that I'm smart. Jesus is alive. <laughs> I don't care if you don't think I got it as quickly as I should have, you know. I mean, just Peter's running into the tomb and he still doesn't get him. Peter's like, I don't care. But I saw him. I saw him and that's what I'm gonna stake my life on. You know, the other reasons that guys like Bakum will argue that we should take this to be historical fact is because uh, as you read the gospel accounts, there are these really strange differences of sort of minor details or accounting between all the gospel accounts. And so some people may see this as a challenge, you know, so, you know, one gospel will say there are two angels, the other one will say there's one, uh, you know, John mentions Mary goes to the tomb, the other guys mention Mary plus some other women, uh, they mention different women at other times. You know, one list says there's a lady named Joanna. The other gospel writers don't include Joanna's name. So there's all these sort of minor details that are, you know, minorly different from one another. But instead of actually making that uh, an argument for the gospels to be less believable, actually, most investigative journalists, you know, who have studied this, or guys like Josh McDowell or Bauckham or from the academic world, say that this actually only adds to the reliability of the accounts because it strikes us like you would see any eyewitness account in any court of law. That if you gathered, you know, if I said, you know, if I asked 10 people to summarize for me what the sermon was about or what happened this morning, there would be minor variations, right? Someone would say, well, you know, one of the Brocks was on stage. Well, does it mean there weren't two? It just means that one person focused on one and the other person wants to say, well, you know, Andrew sounded better, so let's count them both, right? You know, no offense, Andrew, right? Those minor details are actually credence and reason to believe that these stories are actually true. I mean, think about the other, think about it sort of in the inverse of that, right? Flip that around. If the disciples were gathering together to lie and deceive us and to come up with a story about why he was alive, why didn't they take the time to get their story straight? <laughs> I mean, you would think that if guys were going to get together and they would come up with a plan, wait a second, you know, our, our savior, you know, our master who, who said he was going to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Well, he didn't. The Romans are still here and now he's dead, but we're going to lie about it and tell people that he's really alive, but we're still not going to get the kingdom we want or are asking for. So let's lie about it. But they don't bother to get their story straight in all of the minor details. Now, the, the irony is actually the eyewitness accounts helps us to believe that it's even more accurate. It's sort of the audacity of uh, surprising reality, Right. Of course, um, you know, I could keep going, but, you know, they, they mentioned specific names. Uh, part of the reason would be because if you wanted to verify the story, the point of mentioning names is, you know, during this time when they were writing, you could have gone and talked to these people, presumably. Why do we mention Simon of Cyrene? Why does the Gospels mention his son's name? Well, so you, if you were, you know, alive during the time of this writing, you could go ask him. You know, what's the point of the resurrection is that it was historically verifiable, uh, you know, the other, I'll give you sort of two, two more reasons just to consider for why you should think the resurrection is a historical fact. Uh, the, the, the sort of the, the one reason is the empty tomb, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that the tomb is empty has never been historically challenged, and there's no account in any of the ancient records of anyone challenging that it was empty. Uh, you know, so, you know, the, 
the idea about whether or not there was a body, you know, is, has never been argued against. Uh, it's, and what's really interesting is if you listen to guys who are sort of making an apologetic or an argument against Christianity, um, it's very interesting to follow their logic. You know, so famously, uh, the Muslim man Reza Aslan, you know, he, he questions the resurrection. But listen to what he says. He says, the resurrection falls outside of history. It is, by definition, an ahistorical event. So a historian has no business talking about it. It is quintessentially a matter of faith. The question, did it happen, is not a historical question. It cannot have an historical answer. You know, the, the irony of so many assertions right there is none of those assertions are intellectually honest, right? Um, did it happen? That is a historical question, right? That's like, you know, did 1927 happen? Well, that's just, you know, what is time, right? You know, who knows? How do we know? Was anyone alive then? And how do we know they're not crazy, right? How do we know it's not a social construct, right? It's absolutely a historical question. Uh, but what I want you to realize is when he engages this question, basically, he has to equivocate and he doesn't have an answer. He basically, he pulls the, po the postmodern turn and says, ah, who knows? Who cares, right? He avoids the question, right? So the, the idea that the empty tomb is, uh, is very hard to explain. Uh, and this is sort of um, you know, the, the last reason I would say that it's important to know that the resurrection is a historical fact. The difference that that makes, right, is that the disciples, as they are recounting this story, uh, they are utterly amazed at what Jesus did. Uh, this is not something that they immediately understood was going to happen, Right? Uh, they didn't see that this was what Jesus was building to, even though Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels says this is going to happen to him. He's going to die. He's going to be raised in three days. You know, just as uh, Jonah was in the whale three days, so the Son of Man will be in three days. They don't really get it. Uh, and so the idea that the, the disciples, right, uh, are um, never going to be made rich, they're going to die testifying to this story, and then probably most importantly, <laughs> the fact that what convinces them to go tell people about Jesus is the resurrection, um, cannot be ignored. Uh, let, me, let me say, maybe, a, I'm not being very clear. Let me say it a different way. Most people want to relegate Jesus to sort of a important, influential religious figure who sort of broke into the world scene, talked about a new way of living that humanity had never, ever thought of, talked about a new kind of law, a new way of living that the world had never before considered. And so whether he came back from the dead, well, who really cares? What really matters is Jesus is this great moral teacher, uh, this sage uh, who comes out of a distinct time in history just teaching sort of moral lessons for us. Uh, friends, what you need to recognize about the resurrection is that the moral teachings of Jesus, as great as they are, really stem from a deeply Jewish worldview, and they don't really defer or change that much from Judaism. I mean, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Yes, he makes God's law apply more directly, but he's not coming out of nowhere. He's just applying the law to human hearts. And what is fascinating about the resurrection is the disciples do not find Jesus's moral teachings so compelling that that's what they're going to tell the world. After Jesus dies, what do the disciples do? They go home. They go back to fishing. 
Uh, they're all defeated and discouraged. What changes the disciples? Do they get together and they say, man, these moral teachings were really something. You know, we should tell people to be honest, even to the point of dying for it. Uh, did they say, well, let's lie about being honest? <laughs> Is that what they got together and did? Are they saying the moral teachings are the change? Well, they're all unanimous that actually what changes Peter, what changes Thomas is what? It's the resurrection. That's the foundation of Christianity is the resurrection. And Jesus does offer a beautiful moral life. But the, the, the great claims of Christianity are not rooted in the moral claims. They're rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> Jesus is alive. I, thank goodness, I finally got one, right? <laughs> Jesus is alive, and buddy, that changes everything, right? So if you have a problem with Jesus' moral laws or his moral rules, what are you even talking about? He's back from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and you're going to question that guy about his moral laws? See, friends, that's what changes. That's the spark that lights the fire of the gospel moving through the nations as Jesus is alive. And I don't care if I look stupid saying it. I don't care if I depict myself like a, you know, a knucklehead. I don't care if it was the women who were right. You know what? I'm going to testify to the truth. And it's shockingly and it is beautiful and it is the surprising reality of the truth. Everything about the resurrection leads us to believe that they really did see Jesus back from the dead. So that's the first reason why you and I should not weep right now. Because that means that every morning when you and I wake up, right? When we wake up and we see the sunrise, you know, we are waking up into a post-resurrection world. We wake up in a world where Jesus is actively involved, where God has not abandoned us, we are not alone to just power struggles. We live in a world embodied by the very presence of the triune God. We always have hope. We always can have joy because Jesus is alive. I mean, what are you afraid of? I mean, what could you possibly be afraid of? Every fear that you and I could possibly have has been settled finally and ultimately at the resurrection. You know, are we afraid of our, our nation collapsing? Well, Jesus says nations are going to collapse, they're going to rise. But what's going to happen at the end of time? Jesus is going to return and he's going to inaugurate the government we've always wanted, the kingdom of God. Are you worried about injustice in the world? Well, when is injustice going to end? It's going to end when Christ returns bodily. Are you worried about dying right now? I mean, who's not worried a little bit about getting sick and dying? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus is alive. He holds the keys of death itself. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. If God can bring Jesus' body back from the dead, what do you think he's going to do to yours if you are found in him? Why are you weeping right now? It's because of them. It's them. It's them. They are up to something. Let me tell you about it. It's going to get ugly. Notice in John chapter 20 why Mary is weeping, right? What does she say? Look at verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. That's what she reports, right, to Peter and to uh, John, you know, the beloved apostle. And then, of course, later on in verse 15, Mary repeats the same thing. They say, why are you weeping, Mary? Why are you so stressed out right now? Why are you concerned and worried? 
And Mary says, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. See, what Mary is probably referencing, although we don't know, and that's kind of the point, is because when she wakes up on Sunday morning, and she goes to the tomb and sees that it's been rolled away, she obviously gets scared, you know, and the other gospels tell us that there are other women, there's not any men right now, so she, you know, doesn't know what's going on in there, you know, she doesn't look into the tomb, what she does is she runs right back, and she gets some men, she gets John and Peter, and she says, hey, we, we gotta go check this out, something's going on, they've taken his body. So what is it that she's referencing? Who are the they that she's concerned of? Well, the Gospels don't tell us, but there's some obvious options, right? So one option is that the, the religious leaders who got Jesus murdered, well, maybe they're up to something. Maybe they've come to, you know, I don't know, desecrate the body or do something terrible. Uh, but that wouldn't really make any sense for Jewish people to desecrate a dead body, no matter who it is. You know, uh, that, that doesn't really seem like what the religious leaders are doing, but who knows? Maybe they are. The other option, of course, is that it's the Romans. Maybe they're doing something to Jesus' body. You know, maybe the Roman guards have done something awful to it. Maybe they're trying to dishonor it in some way. Uh, you know, maybe they, the Romans, are up to something. I mean, they did take over the country. Who can trust them, right? That's the other they option. Uh, but, you know, the third and sort of most likely explanation of who she's most concerned about is if you look in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, something that was very common when someone was buried is who might show up? Anyone know? Grave robbers, right? So the linen that people were buried in uh, was very expensive. Uh, they had a lot of spices that they would put throughout all the linen that would be very expensive. You know, I mean, it's someone that you love just died, so you could imagine that they would put a lot of wealthy things to honor them, right? It's, you spend a lot of money on the funeral, right? So Jesus's tomb would have had, you know, a lot of spices and linen that would have been worth a lot of money. And so the great fear may be that someone has come to steal uh, the things in the tomb. The other darker fear uh, that probably explains why Mary continues to weep, you know, in verse 11, you know, they go and there's like this pile of linen cloths, like the body just sort of like somehow passed through the linens. But then the person took the time to take the head cloth and roll it up in the corner the reason that the apostles leave is because that doesn't really make any sense to them. You know, they have to go home and ponder it. But Mary stays at the tomb and she's weeping, right? And then the angels show up. Why is she staying there? What may be going through her mind? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, what may have, you know, be going through her mind, you know, I mean, is simply, well, maybe they didn't steal stuff, but maybe they took his body for some reason, and in this ancient world, it was you know, sometimes thought that magicians or sort of witches or people who, you know, worked in the evil spiritual realm, they would take human bodies that had recently died and they would use them for some sort of magical potion, right? And the idea that if someone died violently, maybe their, their corpse was even more full of sort of magical power. So maybe what is going through Mary's mind, I don't know this, maybe, she may be worried that someone has actually taken the dead corpse of Jesus's body didn't worry about the linen cloths or anything, but they're somehow desecrating the body, somehow disrespecting it, doing something unspeakably awful. Uh, you know, notice that she doesn't say what she thinks is happening, is her mind is just going to all of these awful scenarios. What could these people be up to? Who would take a dead body? Why would you leave the linen cloths? Why would you leave the wealthy things? What could you possibly be doing? So all, all that to say, we don't know what's going on in her mind but I do want you to notice that in the light of sort of the, the awful realization that Jesus has died, 
her mind automatically goes to them, right? They are up to something. And I don't know what it is. I can't speak to it, but I know they are up to something. And I think many of us right now, right, are tempted uh, to fall in that same trap, right? We're living in a world where there's a lot of things to be really discouraged about, right? There are a lot of things to be really worried about. You could spend your whole day online, right, uh, exchanging emails or listening to podcasts or listening to news outlets, and you could be really, really worried about what they are up to. And I don't really care if you're they are, you know, on the left or on the right or whatever. But notice that in light of something awful happening, how quickly our minds go to what are they up to? What are they up to? And, you know, there's a kernel of truth, right? Romans are bad guys. The religious leaders did kill Jesus after all. There are grave robbers in the world. I'm not saying they don't exist. There may be a grain of truth to all of our uh, thoughts on what they are up to. But notice that her concern is all melted away about what they are up to when she hears Jesus' voice. What do the angels say? Why are you weeping? You know, it's a rebuke. It's a soft rebuke. Hey, you shouldn't be weeping right now. And then Jesus says, woman, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? And she says, they've taken his body. And he says, Mary, Mary, I'm right here. Uh, Christian, uh, you know, I know they are up to things and there's countless days, right? But sometimes our concern about our days makes us blind to the resurrected Lord Jesus who's actually right next to us. You know, what looms larger? What do you believe in more? Jesus or them? Who's got more power in this world, do you think? And that's really our, our, our last point. And the reason we shouldn't be weeping, now the reason we shouldn't be worried about what they are up to, right? Now the reason we shouldn't be worried about Jesus not coming back from the dead is all wrapped up in this idea of Jesus' ascension. Did you notice that? He says, I have not yet ascended in verse 17. This is why you and I should not weep. It's a very simple idea, although it'll probably change your life if you let it sink in. Uh, for many of us, when we think about Jesus' death, that he's come back to life, and then he's ascended, we often make the mistake of thinking that when we talk about the ascension, that Jesus is somehow really far away. <laughs> Jesus went away from us, and Jesus is really far, and now we're sort of biding our time till we can go to him because he's really far away from us, right? So we're all just sort of like on the Titanic right now, like, when can I get on the life preserver, right, and get out of here? Uh, but that's very, very, very far from what the Gospels depict as the power of the resurrection is very different than how the book of Acts talks about the ascension. Uh, Jesus says, it will be better for you for me to ascend. So if Jesus is really, really far from us, how is it better for us? You see, what happens at the ascension is Jesus, God the Son, goes to heaven, but he sends what? He sends his Holy Spirit. And when it says he ascended, he, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that doesn't mean that he's far away. He's actually closer than he has ever been through his spirit. If Jesus were still bodily here, he would be one person. We would have to go to him to speak to him. But Jesus has the audacity to say, when I am ascended, I will, spend, I will send the very spirit of God to dwell within you. <laughs> he will live within you. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, what low? I am with you always, 
even to the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus' ascension is not Jesus being farther from you, Christian. It's Jesus being with you in a profound new way for the rest of your life. He's a prayer away from you. I mean, Paul even says that we shouldn't sin because God's spirit is within us at all times. And, And Paul says, when you sin, when you give over to sexual sin, don't you know you bring the spirit of God into that? I mean, Paul, what Paul is saying is God's spirit is with you, Christian. He's not far away from you. He's never been closer. And when you and I die, then our spirits will be with him fully. But Jesus is not far from this world. He's intimately and actively at work in it by the power of his spirit, which is in this room even now, where two or three or more are gathered, right? So the reason you and I should not weep Right, is very simply because in the ascension, Jesus is closer to you than he has ever been. He dwells within you. Jesus is not far from us. He is at work in this world. So, um, was Jesus a con man? Right? Was he was he like Gregor McGregor? Never trust a man with the same name twice. Right? Is Jesus a con man? No, I don't think so. And I think uh, C.S. Lewis probably makes this point better than anybody. You know, if you've ever read Mere Christianity, he asked you about the difference between a liar and a lunatic and Lord. You know, and to this question, was Jesus lying to us all? You know, or was he just crazy and delusional? C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Something like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But do not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left us open to that option, and he did not intend to. Now, friends, I know these are some audacious claims. Jesus is alive, right? He is making all things new. Those are audacious claims. Uh, But friends, that's the invitation to believe the resurrection of the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have ascended and that you are at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you're gonna come one day to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. Holy Spirit, we ask that even now that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds, that we would see Jesus. Uh, Lord, uh, you know our concerns Father, you know many of us are concerned about what they are up to. Father, we pray that by your power, you would bind the forces of evil in this world. And Lord, would we focus on the resurrected Christ and not give in to fear? Father, would we see that you are grounded in the physical, real world, that the resurrection happened here? And so, Father, we confess that it's hard for us to believe. So, Jesus... uh, We believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.